This is Pod Academy and I'm Tess Woodcraft. In 1960, the Congo was in turmoil, facing instability, civil war and secession after its newly won independence. It asked, not for the last time, for the help of the United Nations and troops were sent. A year later, a Swedish aircraft carrying 16 people on a peace mission one of them the UN Secretary-General Dag Hammarskjöld, circled over the rainforest of Central Africa. As it came into land, it crashed, killing all on board. There's never been a satisfactory explanation of that plane crash, despite three inquiries. Unsurprisingly, conspiracy theories and speculation about sabotage are legion. But now, more than 50 years later, an inquiry led by a panel of distinguished jurists has reopened the case, and they've come up with some startling new leads. I spoke to the chair of the inquiry, former Appeal Court Judge Sir Stephen Sedley, in his chambers in central London. I started by asking Sir Stephen to explain the background. Doug Hammarskjöld was the second Secretary-General of the United Nations, a Swede, very highly regarded, um, who was on a mission at the time of his death to try to stop the breakaway of the province of Katanga from the newly independent Congo for escalating into a full-scale civil war. He was flying on the night of 17th September 1961, which was a Sunday, from Leopoldville in the Congo to Ndola in what was then northern Rhodesia and is now Zambia, to meet with the president of the breakaway state of Katanga, Moise Chombe, to try to negotiate a ceasefire between his forces, which included a large number of European mercenaries, and the United Nations forces, which were trying to pacify the Congo. Uh, The geopolitical situation was complicated, it always is, but essentially it was a world that we probably no longer recognised. The United States and the Soviet Union both supported the efforts of the United Nations to support decolonisation, in particular in Africa, and it was the colonial powers, the old colonial powers, Britain, France, Belgium, Portugal, who were opposing this in one form or another. Britain, however, had a very interesting and ambivalent role because although it was the parent country, so to speak, of northern Rhodesia, which was then part of the federation of of Rhodesia, northern Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia and Nyasaland, it was also a loyal member of the United Nations, which regarded itself as bound to try to support the efforts of the UN to bring peace to the Congo and to reunite the Congo as a political entity, notwithstanding that the government of northern Rhodesia were bitterly opposed to everything the United Nations was doing. And that ambivalence shows up in places in our report. It's interesting, isn't it, that the UN was very new at that point. You said Dag Hammarskjöld was the second secretary-general. Yes. Do you think there's any significance in in that? Yes, um, it was a a relatively new role, which Hammarskjöld had done an astonishing amount to forge into a serious world diplomatic job and had succeeded in securing the respect of most of the world political community. Uh, There was nothing in his terms of employment which said he had to fly into combat zones and try to sort things out. He did it because it seemed to him the right way to carry out his mandate. Very interesting, given particularly the the UN's continuing role in Congo, even now. Yeah. What was the remit of the Hammarskjöld Commission, um, and who were the commissioners? The... The Commission was, uh, the idea of the Commission 
was sparked off by a book published on the 50th anniversary of the crash in 2011 by um, a London University scholar called Susan Williams called Who Killed Hammerschild? Susan Williams didn't come to any conclusion about her own question, but she assembled a remarkable amount of evidence that had emerged in the intervening 50 years, which pointed to one or other possible cause of the crash. A peer, an English peer, Lord Lee of Crondall, who was interested in Central African politics, assembled an enabling committee which had representatives of Sweden and other countries on it, uh, who invited me to uh, chair a commission of inquiry, a commission of jurists. Uh, I agreed to do this on two conditions. One was that we were not going to try to solve the big question, who killed Hammerschild, if anybody did, but simply to decide whether there was now sufficient evidence to justify the United Nations in reopening its own inquiry, which it had instituted in 1961 and had concluded in 1962 without reaching any uh, decision as to what the true cause of the crash was. The other condition was that I would only do it if I could get together a good team. And in that I was extraordinarily lucky. I persuaded um, Judge Justice Richard Goldstone of South Africa, a very experienced judge and prosecutor, Wilhelmina Thomason, former judge of the Netherlands of the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, and now a member of the Netherlands Supreme Court, and Hans Karel, a Swedish judge and ambassador, who himself had been the head of the United Nations legal section, and therefore very, very well qualified um, team, to come and work with me on this. We met almost daily by email and by Skype, and uh, on three occasions uh, we assembled in London for plenary sessions to discuss face-to-face -face how we were proceeding and what we were going to report. It worked very well. We gave ourselves a timeline of just over a year. We started work in July 2012. And we reported on the dot when we intended to in September 2013. And what were you looking at? The material was very wide-ranging. It included primary, secondary, tertiary, documentary sources. Um, it included live witnesses who we were able to interview both in this country, in Britain, and in Zambia. And it um, was evidence of varying quality, as evidence always is. But at its best, it was evidence which commanded attention and required careful thought. But what did you expect to achieve? After all, it's been, as you said, 50 years, more than 50 yeah. years now. Um, there have been three investigations, three formal investigations. So what more was it possible to achieve? We didn't set out... <clears throat> we didn't set out with the idea that it was necessarily going to be possible to achieve anything. We just wanted to see whether it would be possible. The three investigations you mentioned had all taken place immediately after the crash. The third of them was the United Nations investigation, which was wound up in 1962. In the course of 1961, a civil aviation inquiry took place immediately after the crash, and then a Rhodesian, North, a Rhodesian um, domestic inquiry took place as well. And we mentioned in our report what were the limitations and shortcomings of all three of those inquiries, perhaps not necessary to go into them now. It didn't follow that there would be anything new, but it turned out, and Susan Williams' book gave us a lot of clues to this, that there was, in fact, an extraordinary amount of new evidence that had turned up in the intervening years. And, indeed, once we started work, and let it be known that we were interested in 
uh, hearing from witnesses, more and more witnesses came forward. People now in their 70s and 80s who were present at the time in the forest, charcoal burners um, in the Zambian forest, um, people who were present as journalists at the time in, the, in what was then Northern Rhodesia, diplomats, two very important surviving British diplomats gave us evidence, and so on. Why do you think those people hadn't been spoken to before? It's difficult to know. The remit of the other commissions was not the same as ours. In relation to the African witnesses, although some African witnesses were heard by the commission, others were marginalised uh, in a report submitted to the United Nations Commission by an investigator who obviously didn't think highly of Africans as witnesses. And these were defects which we thought we were able, if not completely to cure, at least to recognise at this distance of time. You do say that none of the inquiries held over, over the years have really measured up to the standards of a modern inquiry into a fatal event. So what was different about yours? How did you go about your task? <coughs> the comparison is not between those inquiries and our inquiry, but between those inquiries and what a fresh inquiry might do. Um, in particular, the impact of Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights on the practice and jurisprudence of European states has been very marked. Article 2 simply enshrines the right to life, but the Court of Human Rights has made it clear that that doesn't simply mean not killing people. It means that the state has an obligation to have a thoroughgoing and sensitive inquiry into the cause of any loss of life that is unexplained, particularly when it may involve the state itself. <clears throat> that means that, um, for example, the families of the deceased have to be much more involved in the process than traditionally they used to be. And there are other elements too. Perhaps we could come to what you particularly focused on. There have been a number of ideas put forward what was the cause yes. of the fatal crash. Perhaps you could take us through them. Yes. We've spoken about the fatal crash with, without really looking at what happened. Mm. Um, what we know happened is that the plane reached Ndola it was an airliner carrying 16 people, if you count the crew as well. One of them, of course, was Habersheld. He had armed guards aboard. He had a diplomatic backup and a very experienced Swedish crew. And it had reached the Indola airstrip towards midnight, overflew it, sw swung round to make the conventional landing approach in a loop, and on the last part of the loop descended inexplicably into the forest below with a gradual loss of height, not a precipitate crash, hit the trees, cartwheeled, and um, burst into flames. Although one theory, one conspiracy theory, is that it was set, a, set alight once it had hit the ground. Everybody but one on board the plane died instantly, including Hammerschild, who, however, was thrown clear, and his body was found relatively unmarked some distance from the plane. This is another reason why there have been queries about how he died. I said everybody but one. Um, senior American security guard, Harold Julian, was thrown clear of the crash, or jumped clear, and survived with very bad burns for six days. He was not uh, perpetually found until three o'clock the following afternoon, and one of the great causes of concern is that it seems simply incredible, literally incredible, that the Rhodesian authorities took 15 hours to find the plane 
when it was on the flight path and not very many miles from the airport. And we have, in fact, given reasons for doubting whether what the official story was was true. But what follows from that is not easy to deduce. It's been suggested that it shows that they were complicit in bringing about the crash, but we've not been able to find that that is so. We don't think the evidence amounts to more than incompetence and muddle. We could be wrong, but that was as far as we felt it was necessary or right to go. Though it was true at the time that Rhodesia, Southern Rhodesia, and, and you say in, in your report, uh, South Africa, were intent on keeping their colonial status at the oh, time. And so they weren't neutral parties no. in, in this visit by Hammarskjöld, were they? One of the many um, problems about this, is, this case is that if you start from motive, there was motive... <laughs> all over the Africa and all over the world for killing Hammerschild. Uh, the Belgians hated him, the French hated him, the white regimes, minority regimes in Rhodesia hated him, and the South Africans hated him, uh, to the extent that um, at least one of our members remembers the jubilation in South Africa when the crash occurred. So, we've got a plane crashing a few miles from the airport, and there are a number of theories... But the ones that you focus on are that there could have been a bomb on board, sabotage, some sort of sabotage of the plane, and the second one is that there may have been an aerial attack on the plane. Yes. So can we look at each of those and what yes. you discovered? Well, the sabotage theory is an obvious one anyway. Anybody who's, who asks themselves the question, can this have really simply been a pure accident? would first of all want to look at the question whether it might have been provoked by a bomb. There was plenty of opportunity to place a bomb on board the aircraft when repairs were being done to it at Leopoldville before it left from Dola. But the dramatic piece of evidence was something that emerged in, of all places, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa during the 1990s, when in a file concerning the murder of the Secretary of the South African Communist Party, Chris Harney, some pages turned up which had nothing to do with the murder of Harney but appeared to be documents recording um, the arranging and carrying out by a South African mercenary organisation of um, sabotage of the plane by use of a bomb. And we've quoted verbatim in the report uh, what those documents contain. The problem is that they could be false in either of two respects. They could be forgeries, in other words, recently created documents looking authentic, but in fact not so. But they could equally be genuine in the sense that they were produced in 1961 when they purpose to have been produced, but be lying about what, what had happened, in other words, claiming credit for bringing down the plane when in fact it had been either a pure accident or somebody else's work. There's no way, even if we could get the originals, which have now been lost, we only have photocopies, of deciding which of those is the case. So while it is possible that it was the truth that a bomb was placed on board, uh, we don't think there's any way of pursuing that to find out whether it was in fact the truth. Uh, there are oddities about the bomb theory because the bomb, if a bomb had been placed on board, you would have expected it to go off when the plane took off and the undercarriage was retracted. If, it, if as must have happened, it only went off as the plane came into land at Ndola, question is, how was it triggered? We do have evidence that it could have been done by remote radio control, but the question is still, why wait till that last moment before doing it? It could also 
conceivably have failed to ignite when the plane took off and have been accidentally ignited by aerial gunfire. And that's what brings us to the second theory. Attack from the air. Attack from the air. Now, that has various sources of support, some of which, most of which we've noted in the report. But the striking one comes from two different sources that seem to coincide. One of those sources is uh, Charles Southall, a former naval pilot and intelligence officer with the US National Security Agency, who remembers uh, being called in by the communications watch officer at his station in Cyprus, from which the NSA was listening to worldwide radio traffic, and told, this was about nine in the evening, get yourself out here tonight, something interesting is going to happen. Sure enough, just after midnight, Southall remembers hearing played back to him a recording, which must have been made minutes before, of cockpit dialogue, which included the pilot saying, I see a transport plane coming low, all the lights are on, I'm going down to make a run on it. Yes, it's the Transair DC-6, it's the plane. And then after the sound of cannon fire, I've hit it, there are flames, it's going down, it's crashing. If that is a correct recollection, and Southall, who's bilingual in French and English, can't be sure whether it was in English or French that he heard it, is very powerful evidence that the plane was indeed attacked from the air. And is Southall one of your new discovery witnesses? Yes, he is post-inquiry in the sense that he's only emerged in recent years. And he gave his his evidence to Susan Williams initially. But I interviewed him directly, myself, for the commission. And And his interview with me is on record. The other piece of evidence which doesn't tie up Um, item for item with Southall but which there are reasons to think are at least convincing is the evidence which was given in 1967 by a man who identified himself by the name Boykels B-E-U-K-E-L-S which may not have been his true name to a United Nations diplomat or former diplomat Lord de Camillaria Boykels claimed that he had been sent up in a Fugger Magister jet which was one of the um, planes used by the Katangan Air Force, with instructions to wait um, at Ndola to and force the plane, the DC-6, to change course in order, said Boykels, to force Hammershell to meet with people representing Belgium and other interests to try to reason with him about what he was seeking to achieve. That account we have treated with great scepticism. It seems to us that even if everything else in Boykel's evidence is true, this was an attempt to kidnap, if not an assassination. Boykel gives a description of the attack on the DC-6, which he says um, went wrong because he was trying to divert the plane, fired warning shots and accidentally hit it and forced it, and forced it to crash. That isn't consistent with what Southall heard, which was a deliberate, or sounds like a deliberate attack, although it is possible that what Southall heard was consistent with an accidental shooting down. But there is enough evidence there, we think, to be worth following up. Now, the interesting thing is, how can you follow it up? Unlike the South African Maritime Research Institute evidence, which may simply be false, 
and there's no way of knowing. This radio traffic was clearly monitored by the National Security Agency. Southall says it was. And we also know from at least one of our British diplomatic sources and from memoirs of CIA operatives that there were planes, two American planes, on the tarmac at Mandola, almost certainly with radio monitoring equipment aboard, who will have, we are pretty sure, listened to and recorded all radio traffic that night. This was, after all, a very important occasion. The Secretary-General of the United Nations was flying on a United Nations mission into Ndola to try to bring peace to a part of the African continent that was capable of going up in flames and affecting the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. So it was an important occasion. The um, Commission accordingly applied to the National Security Agency for disclosure of any recording or transcription of radio traffic intercepted or received by it on that on the night of the 17th to 18th September 1961 and appearing to relate to one aircraft firing upon another or concerning the landing or approach of an aircraft at Ndola. And we asked for that simply in the one-hour window of time between 11.30 at night and 12.30 in the morning because we know that the plane crashed at about 10 minutes past midnight. Because people's watches had we stopped We know that, that because point. four watches on the bodies had all stopped between um, 0010 and 0015 hours. The National Security Agency responded that two out of three documents responsive, that is their word, responsive to the Commission's request, appeared to be exempt from disclosure by reason of top-secret classification on national security grounds. So of these three documents that they have indicate exist, two appear to be in the NSA's hands. We don't know in whose hands the third document is. But they, that they respond to the request, that is that they do have to do with one aircraft firing upon another, or the landing or approach of an aircraft at Mandola that night uh, is now clear. Uh, we have put in an appeal against the classification, and that is where we've now drawn stumps. Uh, the Commission regards its work as over. We've handed matters on to the United Nations, but the appeal is pending with the National Security Agency, and we shall see what happens. It's not, though, as if American sources weren't chattering at that time. You quote newspaper reports of Harry Truman saying, oh, well... They killed him. Yes. How do you tie those things up? We don't. We don't know what, what the source of that um, briefing that Truman must have had was. It appears to tie up, to some extent, with the story that got published much later in Penthouse, uh, which did some serious journalism, and which emanated from the CIA, suggesting that it was a KGB bomb that had brought the plane down, or at least a bomb built to KGB design. That may have been what Truman, how Truman was briefed, or it may have been something quite different. We simply don't know. But we're not sufficiently confident that we will ever find that out to regard it as a worthwhile line of inquiry, although it would be interesting to know. We think that it's the NSA records that contain what information there is. And the information may simply be that the plane lost sight and came down in the forest. We don't include that possibility. So you're not reading anything into the fact no. that the document is not being released? For the moment, no. So your remit, as you say, was to find out if there is evidence that would justify the reopening of the UN inquiry, and you think that this is the smoking gun that at least justifies the UN returning to this issue? Yes, if there's a smoking gun, 
it isn't a, a, an American smoking gun, but maybe a smoking gun of which the Americans have knowledge that nobody else has. That's why it's of interest. As, as far as we understand it, classification is standard and normal, a security classification. But we also understand that after 50 years, classification, it doesn't lapse, but it requires to be freshly and separately justified. And we're now more than 50 years down the road. So it's possible that the classification won't stand. Things uh, have been declassified. Documents about Korea and the Gulf of Tonkin incident were apparently declassified at some point uh, in the, within 50 years. But um, after 50 years, I think the onus is probably on the classifiers to justify continuing classification. So what happens now? What's happened is this. The um, Enabling Committee I mentioned at the start constituted itself into a trust to whom we formally presented our report. They um, have presented it to the United Nations, but the United Nations by then had already taken an interest and had picked up our report from the web and um, set about analysing it and deciding what to do about it. To that end, they've asked for all of our evidence and we've supplied them with the totality or the near totality of the evidence that we, we had. As we understand it, although it's out of our hands now, the De Deputy Secretary General and his team will be advising the Secretary General as to what, if anything, to propose to the General Assembly. And if they take our suggestion, they will propose to the General Assembly that the inquiry that they adjourned in 1962 should be reopened, not at large, but for the strictly limited purpose of following up the NSA archives. That may lead nowhere. It may lead somewhere. Uh, if the somewhere may be a sufficient answer to the question of how the Secretary-General came, came to die, or it may open up other lines of inquiry which would be worth pursuing. We, we, just, we don't know. What we do think, however, is that there is no need to reopen the whole of the inquiry. What, what is useful now, in our view, is a focused and limited inquiry, stage by stage, to see where it leads. You've been a barrister, a very senior judge. You've chaired numerous inquiries into different and often very difficult things. Did you learn anything new from this inquiry? Yes, and I gave evidence about this to a parliamentary committee not long ago. Uh, inquiries tend to be formal, to be given power to take evidence on oath, to compel witnesses to come forward, and to be generally rather like a court. Our inquiry had none of those characteristics. It was a completely voluntary affair. We, the commissioners, weren't paid. The trustees weren't paid. We had a paid secretary who was absolutely invaluable to our work, but that was the only salaried job. We were helped by volunteers. Our experts were all volunteers. We were enormously grateful to them for the time they gave. But most of all, we had no power to put witnesses on oath and to threaten them with perjury charges if they didn't tell us the truth. The traditional lawyer's view of this is that it makes an inquiry weak and, uh, and ineffectual. Our experience was the exact opposite. People who would have been intimidated and possibly humiliated by the use of the oath and the suggestion that it could be perjury not to tell the truth, were perfectly happy to come forward and do their best to tell us what they remembered. 
Uh, and I think it was a positive virtue that we were able to work, had to work informally. But after all this time, why did it matter to hold this inquiry? It matters because it always matters to know the truth about a historical event and because uh, justice and history are worthwhile uh, subjects. Uh, we've in fact said in the report something about this because we were constantly asked it in the course of our work. And what we wrote was this. It's legitimate to ask whether an inquiry such as this, a full half century after the events with which it is concerned, can achieve anything except possibly to feed speculation and conspiracy theories surrounding the crash. Our answer, and the reason why we've been willing to give our time and effort to the task, is first that knowledge is always better than ignorance, and secondly that the passage of time, far from obscuring facts, can sometimes bring them to light. That, I think, is my answer. And we concluded the report with this. It's thus possible that the last half century, far from obscuring the facts, may have brought us somewhat closer to the truth about an event of global significance which deserves the attention both of history and of justice. I was going to say I can't, couldn't put it better myself, but since I wrote it, <laughs> I'll say that.